Hi, this is John Deke, continuing with 25 years of the Very Young Composers, a program of the New York Philharmonic. We're hearing bits of actual music of kids in the VYC program. This piece you're hearing is by Z Tao. It's called Being. Z is one of our students. He's 13 years old. This is scene 21, from New York to Denver and back. So in this past scene, we heard how the idea finally took shape, which would lead to the very young composers, and what a crazy, rollicking ride it would be eventually getting thousands of children to compose music for orchestras, bands, and ensembles. But back in 1994, the fulfillment of the idea wasn't at all clear yet. Furthermore, coming to Denver to try it out was, of course, exciting, but by no means a simple proposition. So many currents were flowing around me, I almost felt as if I were losing my bearings. My natural tendency toward depression and self-doubt would suddenly rear its head. But my family of small children were wonderful and needing of utmost attention. Jackie was, as I say, heroic and awesome in her ability to do the heavy lifting at home while holding down her job with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. I would sneak over once in a while to watch James Levine do his magic conducting of the orchestra and handling vocal soloists with such a plum, dealing with difficult personalities by hewing to the love of the music. Jackie was fortunate to be working there during such a high point of that organization, and I was too at the Philharmonic with Kurt Mazur, who was pulling our orchestra to greater heights. Was I spending too much time composing and not enough with my children? Too much time trying to figure out my new ideas about children's creativity and not enough time practicing my instrument? Or with the Artistic Advisory Committee? Or mountaineering? <laughs> yes, to all of the above. See, I was at my best while hyper-focusing on one thing at a time, as is common with many who have ADHD. But I persevered. Mi norte, as the Spanish say, my north star, would be the children's creativity, or even more specifically, children as composers. That summer, Marin offered me to serve as composer-in-residence at the Cabrillo Festival in California. The orchestra there was scheduled to perform the two works of mine previously mentioned, The Snow Queen and The Legend of Spite and Dival. I had the idea that we should record these works and put out a whole CD including B.B. Wolf for solo bass and Bye Bye for flute and piano. I was amazed that Phyllis and Slade Mills stepped forward and agreed to give seed money for this project. I mean, any orchestral recording is a big deal because of the personnel costs. And they gave a fundraising party to complete the rest, which was successful. Wow. As to the Denver residency, two other valued friends and sponsors who were to figure significantly later on, Linda and Jack Heschler of the American Composers Forum in Minnesota, although congratulating me, gave me a quiet warning that this residency and educational passion of mine might interfere with my own composing. I took note of that, even as I felt compelled to continue. So, 
Despite all the pressures and the confusion, I was all set to begin the great experiment in Denver in the fall of 1994. Several local donors were generous in providing housing and some extra funds to initiate program experiments. I also met Karen Rosica, a symphony supporter and music lover who helped me through some of those rough patches and has become a longtime friend as well. I clearly remember my first rehearsal with the Colorado Symphony when Marin introduced me to the orchestra and had me step up to the podium. My first statement, beyond acknowledgments, etc., was a question. How many of you think of yourselves as composers? Ha! Had I asked that question of my dear colleagues in the New York Philharmonic, I would have been greeted with silence. (laughs) But here, no fewer than six people eagerly raised their hands. I will rely on you, I said, and wow, I meant it. At the intermission, a man came up to me rather breathlessly and introduced himself as Eric Bertoluzzi, being the education director of the orchestra, which at that time newly incorporated as a cooperative, which was a fascinating managerial concept to me. Eric was to become my friend forever, and from whom I have learned more about administration, not to mention love of music and young people, than I'd ever known possible. We have been waiting for you, he said, pausing to take a breath. I heard you speak at the League of American Orchestras, and I said, that's the man we want. Well, Eric was the person I want and needed, too. Marin would later make fun of us at board meetings as being twins. Another free spirit who worked in Eric's office was Gene Mitten. I was perfectly happy to sit and watch them as they went about their business, learning, as it were, at their feet. Another inspiration was publicist Valerie York of Lakota Sioux heritage. And wow, I had a lot of learning to do. The first year I dot off my experiments and my forays into classrooms throughout Denver yielded much usable fruit. I simply hadn't taken enough time to focus my curriculum and my abilities at classroom management would take years to bring to any semblance of expertise. And yet, I was doing what I needed to do. As it was, a number of young students attached themselves to me, and I could see already that I was giving them a confidence and self-respect that they sorely needed. Several from that first year went on to further study and kept in touch with me. Especially interesting was the fact that girls seemed to be quite interested in the idea of composing, but had not received any encouragement. Harking back to Chapter 7, why were these experiences so different from those at the Interlochen Arts Academy? I mean, after all, I was working with young people there, too. But what I was teaching then was much more restrictive. I was filling their so-called empty heads with my knowledge and ushering them along a preordained path, for the most part. The fault was mainly mine, not so much the institution, But here, ah, here, the students and I were on our own. We were discovering what was already inside them, urging them to explore themselves and the world around them through sound and story. Here was absolutely no preordained path. This was, in effect, an unclimbed mountain. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) no wonder I was having fun, even if I wasn't getting scratched up now and then and worrying about grizzly bears. 
to be honest, I was having quite a bit of fun as a composer, too. My first pieces written for the symphony were well received by audiences and the press, the Denver Post, Rocky Mountain News, and anyway, the critic Mark Schulgold in particular seemed to get what it was I was trying to do. I also threw myself into promoting adult and professional composers in the Rocky Mountain area. What fun that was! I could arrange concerts at the local black box theater, and I delighted in the vital music that was being created. For instance, my favorite at the time was an almost barefoot harmonica player from Georgia named Clay Kirkland. He could bend his blues harmonica to any style of music you could think of. But he loved classical music, amazingly, and it was his life's ambition to arrange his own harmonica version of Brahms' Third Symphony, Third Movement, for himself and a small orchestra. Uh, listen, I was happy to oblige him. To hear him mournfully wail that tune out over his string arrangement stirred my soul and sent me to heaven. I've never heard that symphony in the same way since. I'm always glad to be open to these kinds of ideas, new ideas, rather than remain a, a purist. Sorry. <laughs> By my second year in Denver, I began to get more of the hang of it and worked in grade schools as well as middle schools. There were kids from the Denver School of the Arts who wanted to work in composition, even though they were barely adolescents. There were kids from the Denver School of the Arts who wanted to work in composition, even though they were barely adolescents. I was able to get both these kids and grade school kids to write ensemble pieces and then to orchestrate them for the symphony. Maybe this would work after all. It was terribly labor-intensive, and countless people, both then and now even, would say to me, John, can't you just write out the details yourself and save a lot of trouble? But my answer was always clear and crucial. If I would make the orchestration details myself, then the work would just be a collaboration, and what's the point of that? We needed to hear the child's voice, not mind intruding. So even though I had to copy out their final scores in pencil and paper, couldn't get the hang of computers, I still had them with me all the way because I insisted on them making all the orchestration decisions themselves, down to dynamics, harmonic spacing, octaves, phrasing, the whole 9,000 yards. If they couldn't play the melodies on the piano or whatever instrument, they had to sing them. The harmonies they worked out, as we still do with them, by that exercise that I called the ear fantasy. I think I mentioned that. Whereby we would play various chords interval intervals, and they would instinctively shout out a feeling they associated with it. And as I said, I had gotten this idea from L.B. himself, remember? For instance, a minor second might be buzzing bees. A major second, passing an exam at school. A major triad was almost never just happy, but bright, brittle, yellow, my family, or the end. One girl in Korea once constructed an entire fairy tale upon hearing, I think, I think it was a major seventh chord. I couldn't stop her, nor did I want to. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. The fact is that these chords and intervals do change their effect with context and instrumental color, right? But once a child grabs onto the first version of it, 
on the piano or singing or whatever, the first version, the rest seems to evolve more easily than if they had only been taught the proper name of it. You've got that? I mean, I had several kids in Finland and in China too, come to think of it, who would say, boring, I already know the name of that chord. But then I would counter, well, that's great, but I'm not interested in your name of it. I'm interested in your feeling about it. Well, then we would get a sitting up in the chair and a plethora of answers and ideas that would flow as if a floodgate were open. One kid told me, and he was very advanced musically, but he told me that he was hearing the harmonies and intervals in a completely new way because he'd been discouraged from expressing his feelings about them before. Anyway, these Finnish and Chinese kids had plenty of musical background, as do all kids in some of these countries. But I was also, and perhaps primarily, interested in kids with no formal musical background, whatever, but who, like so many children, loved music and sang with each other and played on perhaps homemade instrument they built or found themselves or jammed with their friends in the street. In Denver, in one of my classes, was Jeremy, a nine-year-old kid of color. Okay, he was clearly gifted. All right. But it was a joy to watch him improvise on homemade percussion instruments. He learned to notate in a matter of weeks. He wrote a small ensemble piece that had a real core to it. So I asked his mother if I could get him to write a piece for the Colorado Symphony. I would still have to copy out the score as he dictated it to me. But the piece he wrote, which included some found percussion instruments and the whole orchestra, caught the attention of the news media, and Jeremy found himself being interviewed on CNN and uh, maybe other radio stations and so on as a little genius. The publicity was certainly appreciated for the program, but the point of the work that I was beginning was that all children were created creative, regardless of color, economic, cultural, or musical background, and not just the little geniuses. Otherwise, we would perpetuate that charge of elitism that so often confronts symphony orchestras. Though I was told many times that we needed poster children, like Jeremy, but I didn't want to use him like that. He was just a beautiful little kid. I was sad when he moved away after this, and I lost contact with him. Two more examples will suffice to bring home just how profound an influence this concept was already having on children. Christy was a fifth grader at one of the public schools and was excited about composing. She was encouraged in her piano lessons by her teachers, but told in no uncertain terms, girls don't compose. Surely, thinking back, I had been aware of this prejudice long before, but now sort of, well, hit me squarely between the eyes. What was the problem, for heaven's sake? Christy was bursting with ideas. All I had to do was lift her out of her funk to point out how excited I was to help her. She continued to enjoy our classes, to write, write, and write some more. She eventually wrote a totally cool orchestra piece called Running, which Marin conducted with the Colorado Symphony. It was like a testament to freedom. Just one more instance, I promise. Well, maybe I shouldn't promise. But anyway, Steve was in my class at Horace Mann Middle School in North Denver. The class was going well, but Steve, who was a beginning cello student, hung back, attending the class, but never saying a word, 
never contributing an exercise or a graphic score, nothing but sitting in the back with his arms crossed, frowning and sometimes making faces even. Many teachers might have kicked him out. It was not rocket science to see that he was depressed. I could recognize that right away. The end of the semester was approaching, and most of the kids had written pieces for the all-city high school orchestra, a string orchestra concert with the mayor of Denver in attendance. So after class, I asked Steve to stay with me a moment. He resisted, acting as if I were going to punish him or bawl him out. I smiled and made a little welcoming motion with my head. To my relief, he sat down. I asked him if he wanted to write any music because, well, next week it would be too late to be included in the concert. A simple fact. He grumbled inaudibly, finally conveying that he, yeah, he'd written some stuff, but he immediately added, it's no good, you'll hate it. Try me, I said. Can you play any of it on your cello? And as if it were the last thing he wanted to do, he picks up his cello. I'm telling you, you'll hate it. Okay, I'll hate it, Steve, but I want to hear it. Can you just play maybe the first note? And he screwed up his face, in fact, his whole body, and played the loudest, most angry, horrid, scratching chord imaginable on all four strings of his cello. He put down his bow and hung his head. See? A silence. Wow, I said, raising my eyebrows. What's the next note? And in that moment, something happened to him, even as he resisted it. Well, it goes on like that for a little while in the cellos and basses, but then... Go ahead, what then? I held my breath. Well, this eerie, beautiful sound comes from the violins and violas, like something from the sky and he played some high double-stop harmonics on his cello awkwardly, but I could see what he was aiming at, and in fact, I was amazed he could play harmonics at all. I quickly grabbed a pencil and staff paper. Go on, Steve, play that part again. I didn't quite get it. Naturally, he could see the excitement in my eyes, and I could certainly see it in his. And in several more sessions, Steve dictated an astounding piece of anger and forgiveness a dialogue back and forth, back and forth, and ending with the cellos and basses finally joining the upper strings in an ethereal melody of, I don't know, something like a, an expectant suspension. In other words, unresolved. At the concert, Steve sat alone, happy, but still embarrassed in taking his bows. A number of us were in tears. How I wish I could have kept up with him. It would be a long road, and I wished I could have traveled it with him, or at least watched from a distance. Okay, I'm done. There were so many more stories and joys and struggles yet to follow, and I wanted to devote my life to each one of them. But I had to move on. How would this nascent program, it was just beginning, and how would it play in the New York City public schools? We were soon to find out.